be productive. And last night I found this evil, horrible app. Uh, I don't even know what it's called now. This is a brilliant concept. They give you like two random Wikipedia articles, and then it's a game to link yourself from one to the other. They keep track of your time and how many steps. It's like the like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon for for Wikipedia. I, I, the first one I got was like onion to broccoli. That wasn't too bad, right? Like I was able to get vegetables and plants and stuff. But then I got I got really stumped uh, before I went to bed last night trying to get from breast cancer to horseradish. That that I I gave up. Uh, I don't know if it was impossible or not. Look, that's the crazy thing. Most of the links are possible some way somehow if you're if you're thorough enough. Um, we have a tendency, I think it, it's part of our human nature, at least it is for mine, uh, that no matter what path I'm on to, to wander. What we're looking at this morning in, in James chapter 5 is final words and our final message in this uh, series on James. It is the common habit that we have, not just of wandering around Wikipedia, but wandering from the truth, wandering from the, the truths of, of the, our Christian faith, the truth that we've held dear for 2,000 years and arguably much longer than that. And James has a, a really simple message for us this morning. And we're going to look at this message by examining the danger, the call, and the courage that James puts before us. So starting in, in the verse 19, uh, James begins, My brothers, if, any, um, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. So he's closing this letter with this address that he uses repeatedly throughout the letter, my brothers, it's a, it's a term of endearment, a term of closeness, it's a reminder that in the family of faith, we, we truly are a family, that they are brother and sister relationships. He is anticipating good things from them, he is anticipating holy things from them, but he begins this thought, that someone might wander from the truth. He has this conditional statement, this if-then statement. Uh, in Greek, there's actually different types of if-then statements. It's pretty simple in English, if-then, but in Greek, there's different types. They have slightly different purposes, and I'm not going to go into all of that, but this type of if-then statement suggests uh, it, it, it suggests that there's some likelihood of the condition being true. It's not saying that absolutely, certainly, positively, one of you will go astray. But it's assumed that there's some decent, reasonable chance that that will, in fact, happen. And so when you realize that, that's a bit striking. James apparently thinks that there's quite a strong chance that one of them, one of these uh, professed Christians that he's writing to, is going to wander from the truth. What do we mean by, by wander from the truth? I, I think we need to dwell on this because we use language like this lightly sometimes. 
I think we use language like this, at least in, in the modern American church, to, to indicate somebody who's maybe struggling with their faith or, or uh, just a little, little mishap of the faith. And, and I don't know that we understand the seriousness of this. The picture that, that James is painting with this terminology is, is sort of a, a smooth, paved, uh, easy road. And that, and that road is, is truth. And on either side of the road are, are sort of a dark woods whose canopy is so thick that you can't see the hand in front of your face. And it's, it's wild with, with steep declines to ravines and rocky canyons. And the wanderer has gone from that smooth road to a path of what is essentially inevitable death. And the religious term that we would put on that is apostasy. Not a word we like to use much anymore. But we need to recognize that apostasy is a real and present threat to the community of faith, even to our community here in downtown Cleveland. James envisions it as a live possibility, even perhaps as a likely scenario. In fact, you could say that perhaps the entire letter of James, if you think about it, the entire letter of James could be summed up as a call to remain on that firm and established path called truth. <coughs> So it's not just a how-to guide of the, the Christian life. It's every bit a desperate plea to the Christian to remain in the light of life. There is this constant vigilance that we need as Christians because the call of the wild is a, is a siren intriguing us with haunting melodies, beckoning us to be broken and shipwrecked on the rocks of sin. And so we need to take this threat to our faith seriously. How does one commit apostasy? How does one wander from the truth? Uh, this word wander is interesting because it can have a couple different nuances. It can hold either the sense of finding oneself out of step or being led a step, being led astray. So we could say that the idea of a person, that the idea is a person who is deceived away from the truth. Or a person who goes astray from the truth. One of those two ideas, and probably both are possible. They're both are, are options, but arguably both of those things are intertwined, they're ever-present. We can be deceived by other people, by other ideologies, by their philosophies. We can be deceived by our own hearts. But if apostasy is one way or another leaving the path of truth, I think it might be important to, to think of the truth from two different dimensions. Truth is not just propositional content. It is that. We call that orthodoxy. But truth is also the manner of living correctly before God, having right practice. We call that orthopraxy. Now, orthodoxy is a, a collection of fundamental non-negotiable beliefs of the Christian faith. 
A, a famous example of orthodoxy is the Nicene Creed of 381 that we read this morning. Doctrines like the Trinity, the full deity of the Son and of the Spirit, creation and providence. These things have been historically considered orthodox. Most Christians agree that orthodoxy goes beyond the Nicene Creed, that there's more uh, doctrines than just what's housed in the Nicene Creed that we would consider orthodox. But the, what the Nicene Creed contains is a portion of what we call orthodoxy. At the center, there's wide agreement about what those things are, but what the things that we would consider orthodox are. On the margins, there's some debate here and there between <coughs> Christian groups about how essential different doctrine are. The opposite, though, would be uh, to not be orthodox would be a heretic. And, and there's a lot of definitions that have been put forward about what orthodox means and what heresy means, and some of those are just not very helpful. I think for, for practical purposes, a helpful definition is something like this. We could say heresy is a doctrine that it is impossible to believe and be consistent with the truth of the gospel. Heresy is doctrine that is impossible to believe and be consistent with the truth of the gospel. And we can say orthodoxy is doctrine that is necessary to believe to be consistent with what has been revealed in Scripture about the Gospel. Now that leaves some wiggle room. If you follow how I laid that out, that leaves a little bit of wiggle room because, for instance, some well-intentioned Christians might not realize that they hold a heretical belief. So in other words, a belief could be inconsistent to be held, but say a young Christian, a new Christian, someone who just converted might have a strange idea about God, that's inconsistent with the gospel, but they haven't noticed that yet. They haven't come to that point yet. Uh, the phenomenon of holding inconsistent beliefs simultaneously, we, we understand that. We know that. We've all experienced that in our life. We've all known people. That we, we have cognitive dissonance, right, when we realize that these two beliefs we hold are incompatible with one another. We might say that such a person with one of those beliefs is, is weak in their faith, or young in their faith, or young in their knowledge of faith, and, and the remedy for that is discipleship. It's growing them up into the faith. We might say that such a person believes a heresy, but we usually wouldn't call that person a heretic. We usually reserve that term for someone who is conscientiously teaching doctrines inconsistent with the gospel. Although some people throw around those terms lightly in a way that I think is destructive, disunifying, and harmful. But even so, even though it's probably possible in many cases for someone to hold a belief that is heresy that's inconsistent with other beliefs they're holding, that doesn't mean that's okay. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. Christians should seek to grow in the faith. And, and as we grow in the faith, we will hopefully recognize that we have inconsistent beliefs. The problem with having some inconsistent beliefs is as we work to reconcile the fact that our beliefs are inconsistent, we might be led to follow the ones that are false. And that's why 
even though it's understandable that a young Christian, uh, uh, an immature Christian, a new believer in the faith might hold some incompatible beliefs, it doesn't mean that we don't need to address it through discipleship. On the other hand, on the other hand, there's some wiggle room, uh, maybe not as much, but there are many true Christian beliefs that we would probably not put in the category of orthodoxy. They're true, but we wouldn't put them in the, in the, in the category of if you don't believe this, there's a major problem. And I will take for one of the believer's baptism, or the, the property credo baptism, baptism on belief. And while I think that doctrine is true, and it's extremely important, I would not call someone who believed in infant baptism or, or pedo-baptism the fancy term. I wouldn't call that person a heretic. I would not say that that person is not orthodox. I'd just say they're wrong. So, assuming that's the only issue in the question. So, so Tim Keller is wrong about baptism. Great guy, I assume. I haven't met him, but he's not a heretic. He's just, he's just wrong. You can be wrong and, and not be a heretic. Um, my point is, though, that we need these categories. We need to talk about orthodoxy and heresy. They're extremely important. We shouldn't lightly throw them around because, again, they can be destructive, they can be hurtful, and they can actually do more damaging in the hands of people who are arrogant and angry. I don't know. People get angry with the arrogance, but they do. Um, but we need them because there is a body of truth that we must absolutely uphold. Jude talks about the faith, the faith, once for all, handed over to the saints, and that we must contend for that. We must defend that truth, that orthodoxy <coughs> against competitors that would undermine the gospel. A, a final note on, on heresy, though. You can never have an exhaustive list of heresies. There, is, there are infinitely creative ways uh, of denying the truth. Church history is filled with new ways to contradict the fundamental truths of the faith, causing the church to better articulate its beliefs and confront these lies. In fact, we, we saw that, uh, if you were here last week and this week, uh, last week we, we read the Nicene Creed of 325, which is not a very well-known creed. Most people think of the Nicene Creed and think of the one drafted at Constantinople in 381, but what happened was they were trying to, to fight against a heresy called Arianism that denied that Jesus was God. And they thought they crafted a creed that, that had virtually unanimous appeal among church leaders across the world and effectively demonstrated and, and spelled out that no, Jesus is fully God. But it turned out some Arians had some creative ways of, of, of getting around it, and many of these uh, false teachers were able to affirm the creed of 325 and still deny that Jesus was God. And they realized, oh boy, they're getting creative. We need to clarify a little bit of me and, and, and how it is we look at Jesus' deity. So, there are infinitely creative people. The people who wrote the Nicene Creed of 381 weren't wrestling with the free spirit mysticism of the Middle Ages. They weren't wrestling with the selling of indulgences that led up to the Protestant Reformation. They weren't 
dealing with Mormon doctrines of infinite gods and the deification of human beings that came about in the 19th century. They weren't wrestling with the prosperity gospel of the 20th and 21st centuries. All of those are unique systems that directly or indirectly in some cases undermine the gospel. And there will be new ways. And there are so many that we can't mention. So the best inoculation program against heresy is a robust and disciplined orthodoxy. It's understanding the faith that we believe well so that we can smell, we can sniff out false teaching, that we, we that our the red flags go up when we hear concepts and buzzwords that cause us to investigate and look closely and say, what is going on there? And, and, and defending and contending for that faith once for all. And that's one of the reasons, in no small part, one reason why we started reciting creeds around the beginning of this year uh, and, and other confessions in our services. Is to say, hey, we stand on these things with Christians who've gone before us for generations. We stand on these truths. These things are non-negotiable. So we can phrase them differently over the years, but these things have stood the test of times. But there's another way to wander. There's another way to wander that might be a little bit more closely related to a sizable chunk of James's letter. <coughs> and that is to become, we might say, a moral heretic. We might fail to follow orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is right doctrine. Orthopraxy is right practice. In fact, as we said, um, that's what a lot of this letter is about. It's not enough merely to believe the right things about Christianity. It's not. Because one of the fundamental beliefs of the gospel is that Christianity demands repentance. And that repentance leads to a faith that produces obedience. And so we're called to a, a new way of living. And some ways of living are incompatible with that gospel call. Doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. But it does mean we've been set out on a new path, a new way to walk, a new way to conduct ourselves, a new way to live and be and exist in a broken world. And it seems strange to me that this subject has received less attention in the history of the church. Um, it's not that it hasn't received some attention. Of course, Christians are, are, have always been very concerned about morality. That's been a, a concern from the very early years. Um, the, the first century church was, was planted in places like Corinth, in, in which uh, rampant uh, prostitution and and three uh, sexual liaisons of all sorts of types that even aren't accepted in 21st century America, where the norm is planted in places like Athens, where any philosophy and idolatry under the sun could be tolerated. Um, so morality was a key issue, and we read it throughout the New Testament. But it hasn't been as big an issue since those first few centuries, I don't think. 
And that might be changing as the West rapidly moves into what we can say as a post-Christianized society. I don't know that I ever have called the West, let alone America, a Christian society, but it certainly was once Christianized, meaning that the prevailing ethics and norms were heavily influenced by Christianity. And one could expect that the average person on the street has some idea of what Christianity was, some passing knowledge of its basic ideologies. You know, we're a little past that, I think, and, and we're rapidly moving further away. You know, Ten years ago, I met someone on the street who had heard of Jesus but couldn't tell me a single thing about him. That was, that was ten years ago. We are rapidly moving into this post-Christianized society. And that means that we have a post-Christian ethics, which means when people convert and become Christians and join the church, they need to be taught the morality that God calls us to, because it's not part of their cultural identity. It's not part of what they heard as norms and standards. They need to be taught orthopraxy. But what are the boundaries of, of this orthopraxy? Well, we could say, if the, to, to kind of give some similar definitions, we said moral heresy is the practice, the practice, is a practice that is incompatible with the truth of the gospel. And orthopraxy is a practice that is necessitated by a proper understanding of the truth of the gospel. And the same sort of caveats apply. I'll give you an example. Let me give you an example of a post-Christianized moral heresy. There was a very well-known televangelist a few years ago, I think it was 2012, maybe, who took a question about a man whose friend was seeing a woman other than his wife because his wife was suffering with Alzheimer's. So the man had a wife who was suffering with Alzheimer's, and, and, and he starts seeing another woman on the side because his wife doesn't recognize him or um, is, isn't able to communicate well with him, and he doesn't have the same relationship with her, I guess. And, and the friend, obviously, is feeling conflicted about this and wants to know what he should say to his friend, so he writes or calls or whatever this televangelist. And that um, televangelist said, I quote, they are gone. So what he says basically is correct, but I know it sounds cruel. But if he's going to do something, he should divorce her and start all over again. But to make sure she has custodial care and somebody looking after her. Better theologians than this televangelist were quick to say that it was a denial of the gospel. <coughs> it didn't mention the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ or his ascension to the right hand of the Father. He didn't talk about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, the glory of God alone. What, what do you mean it's a denial of the gospel? Because marriage isn't about your happiness. It's not about your satisfaction in this life. It's just not. It's not primarily about completing someone else. And I, I'm sorry if you've been taught that, but instead, marriage is a picture that points us to Jesus Christ. 
It shows us something of what Christ is like. He is like a husband to his church, whom he cares for, protects, defends, fights for, purifies, cleanses us. As Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You see, divorcing a wife who is weak and is helpless is the exact opposite of what Christ did for us. He bought us by his blood when we were rebellious sinners. And he, and he faithfully stands by us even when we lust after idols and, and when we pursue our own desires. To divorce a spouse under conditions like Alzheimer's. What does that say about what Jesus means for his church? Would he so easily give us up? Because we've become weak? No. <clears throat> he wouldn't. He doesn't. He will not. And so to treat so lightly the subject of marriage that it can be thrown away because it's suddenly become difficult is to say something horrible about Jesus Christ. That's a moral heresy. And James says that this is, for lack of a better word, like our sinfulness, our weakness, our idols, our desires to get along, to be liked, they tempt us off the path. We test scripture by our own experiences rather than test our experiences by scripture. Does that make sense that we, we, we experience our world, we see what our world is like, we see what our world says, and then we look at Scripture through the lens of our world and try and see what Scripture says. Instead of looking at Scripture, understanding what God has spoken to us faithfully and eternally in His Word, and then looking to culture through the lens of Scripture and making a determination about it through God's eyes. This matters. Because wandering in this sense is not a temporary state. A friend of our, our family's um, a while back, we were able to do something uh, nice, uh, help out somehow with their daughter. And uh, the, the woman remarked something to the effect of how, how nice it was, how good it was for her to see Christians being this way because she's really struggling with her faith. Something along those lines. You know, we use this Christianese, you know, they're really struggling with their faith. And, and it sort of became clear that by struggling with their faith, what really was meant was they just walked away from Christianity altogether. <coughs> but we have a hard time saying that. I mean, that, that's understandable for a parent. I have a hard time seeing that about their, their kid. That they just left and abandoned the faith entirely. But we do, we, we wish so much for people. Good things. 
that we have a hard time being honest when we see things that are dangerous. Wandering leads to apostasy, and apostasy is departure from the grace of Christ. And we never depart His grace. So that's a scary reality. And James says that that's a live and real possibility in our church. Verse 19b, second part of verse 19. He says, and someone brings him back. So it's a, it's a two-part if-then clause. If this guy wanders, and someone brings him back. So if, we have these two conditions that have to be met. Um, and James sees it as a reasonable probability. This is interesting. He sees it as a reasonable probability, not just that someone is going to wander, but that also someone is going to try to turn them back. And that's maybe more specifically what, Jesus, uh, what James is saying. Uh, brought back, it, it sort of turned back. The brother or sister is repented. Brought to a place of repentance. The picture here is when a professed believer has, has wandered off the path into that dark and dangerous off-path area and a Christian ventures to grab him or her by the shoulder and spin him around and lead him or her back onto the path. That's a simple enough idea to state, but it may be a little bit more difficult to pick apart and apply. You know, it's interesting that for a fairly common movie trope, we don't see ourselves playing this part very often. Uh, my mind goes to Star Wars, first and foremost, so I'm sorry, Brian, who's not seen this, and there might be some plot spoilers. Um, <laughs> But there's thousands of other movies. They, they all have the same basic plot line, right? You get a guy like Anakin Skywalker, who is seduced by the dark side, and he becomes so engulfed in that world that for all intents and purposes, he's dead. In fact, uh, um, Obi-Wan Kenobi can say that Darth Vader killed your father. Darth Vader killed Anakin Skywalker. He was killed by what he became and Darth Vader. But his son, Luke, hopefully I didn't ruin that for you, Brian, uh, but <laughs> pursues him with the belief that he is not necessarily lost entirely, but could be turned back. He can be brought back to the right path. And so he is. And we got a million movies that basically follow that same plot, right? The, the guy that you wished you could hope for and root for becomes bad, becomes evil, and someone comes and they they turn around. And yet for all the movies and books and songs that we've sung to that end, we don't really play that role very much, do we? We have lots of examples of what it would look like to play that role, but we don't. We don't play the would-be hero. Our lives do not imitate art. But James thinks someone likely, hopefully, will. Why don't we do this? Why don't we go and rescue the brother or sister that we see in peril off the road? We see them in the distance, a glimpse of their shirt behind the, the brush of the evergreen trees careening off uh, toward a rocky canyon. Why, why don't we go and reach out and grab them and pull them back? Why don't we do that? Uh, I, I can think of four off the top of my head. 
Um, first, I think sometimes we believe it's someone else's responsibility. There's a wiser, or there's an older, or there's a more mature person. They're probably not going to listen to me. That's what the elders should do, right? That's what the pastor is for. But, you know, the interesting thing is James just talked about the pastors in, uh, in verse uh, 15, 14 and 15. So if he wanted to appeal to the elders doing this, he, he could have. It, it's right here. And yet he uses the most generic term possible. Someone. James doesn't envision any particularly special person. Just, just someone. Obviously a Christian, but a someone. Are you some Christian? Do you see a brother or sister wandering from the truth, from orthodoxy, or from orthopraxy, from right doctrine or right practice? Why not go get them? It's not someone else's job. It's your job. It's like Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault. The idea that you know you've got to go. You're aware of it. Do you love them? Do you care about them? Loving isn't letting kids go their own way. If loving was letting someone go their own way, all four of my boys would be dead. I assure you, that's not love. That is a cruel uncaring stance toward another human being. Second, I think maybe we don't do this because we're scared. We're scared of the person's reaction. We're, we're scared of the reaction of other people in this situation. We, we think we'll be taken as judgmental or unloving even though it is just about the most loving thing we can do. We'll be seen as a prude or a fundamentalist or intolerant. It could cost us social capital. It could, it could harm us around the office or, or whatever the, the case might be. Maybe our family would, would disown us. I, I don't know. But at the end of the day, what it comes down to is we're more afraid of man than we are of God. We're more afraid of what human beings think of us, let alone what they'll do to us, than we are of God. I'm guilty too. Shame on you. Thirdly, this is related. I, I don't think we believe the scriptures very well. We know, for example, that God is not desiring that any should perish, as Paul tells Timothy. And he gives us explicit commands, and he gives us explicit instructions to bring back uh, a wayward brother or a wayward sister. So God doesn't want that sister or brother to perish on some level, and has given us directions on how he wants to see that not take place. And I think we just don't believe God that it'll work. We just don't believe in that it's going to work. But we serve the God with whom all things are possible. And we're pessimists. How can we be pessimists serving this God? 
fourth reason I think we don't believe Christians who've gone astray is simple indifference. And it takes many forms. It's often just a self-centered focus on our own affairs, our own dreams, our desires, and it prevents us from being deeply involved in other people's lives. And so we don't see, we don't know, and because we don't see, and because we don't know, we don't go. This is one of so many reasons why we need to be in covenant fellowship with one another in a local church. Not necessarily this one. But in a local church, it's, it's not enough merely to show up, although that's important. We must be intentionally and deeply involved with others' lives. <clears throat> How else will we know to go? What's more, I would submit that it's easier to bring someone back who's just touched their foot on the other side. They're, they've just started over there. That's easier to bring them back than if they've run a few football fields out and they're dancing in between the trees in the distance. That's a lot more dangerous. It's a lot more difficult. Being intimately engaged with one another will allow us to see those first subtle false steps that could lead to disaster before any disaster strikes. But if we're not around and we're not intentionally connected, not only will we not be there to rescue someone, but no one will be able to see us to rescue us should we ourselves go astray. That's a live possibility also. And that is just one crucial reason why Non-attendance in a worship service, just for one example, can portend so many bad things. When we see a fellow believer checking out or not being present in the primary gathering of believers in his or her church family, it's like they're swimming in dangerous waters without a lifeguard. And the world is full of dangerous Waters. It's not Lake Placid. It is choppy breakers and unyielding undertow. And no one has eyes on us if we hide. <coughs> so let's correct that. Finally, though, James gives us and he really puts it in perspective for us in verse 20. Let him know, first we bring someone back, that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So in this verse, James identifies both what should give us courage as well as what makes the situation so serious. Both, uh, James points to two things. He says that a rescuer of a fellow Christian 
should be reminded of the significance of the event, but by doing so, he also speaks a good word to us by way of encouragement. First, he says, it's bringing the wanderer from death to life, and it's saving his soul from death. Secondly, it's covering a multitude of sins. Both of these point to the sinner, the wanderer. And you get a sense of the desperation here. A Christian is forgiven of sins by definition. He is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins, the scriptures say. So for the wanderer to have his or her sins covered up, to be brought back from the dead, <coughs> suggests that they have become, in fact, a non-Christian. Arguably, this person never was a Christian, but James doesn't press these points, so we'll leave those for a different sermon. But it's reinforced by the fact that a person is saved from the dead. You see, a, a person who's wandered away from the truth is dead in his or her sins. That's exactly how Paul describes the fate of uh, non-Christians in Ephesians chapter 2 which uh, I'm excited about. Um, sometime this summer, uh, Zach Ryback is going to preach a sermon in Ephesians 2 for us. This is the plan we're going. Um, but Paul writes there, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working, the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were dead before we were Christians. Spiritually dead. And so for this person to be brought from death to life <coughs> enforces the fact that they are not a Christian. Brothers and sisters, we can't take this lightly. It, it, it's not just that people wander off and then, well, they'll be okay. You know, that eventually they'll turn back and they'll come back. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But I'll tell you what, they won't turn back on their own. There will be someone, directly or indirectly, who turns them back. Maybe they'll, they'll read something, uh, a, a strong Christian thinker, or they'll hear a sermon. Maybe it'll be a friend, a co-worker, a colleague, but someone will plant the seed that grows in faith in their soul that brings them back. But no one saves themselves. That's not a Christian category. So if this is you this morning, if you've wandered from the truth, or maybe you've never known the truth, there is a common condition of all human beings whether we remember that day or, or we don't remember that day, but we were born in rebelliousness. We were born into sinfulness. 
We are bent away from God because of this thing called sin. And each one of us has voluntarily, willfully chosen to rebel against God. The scripture is clear that the wages of sin, the payment for sin, what we deserve, our paycheck, is death. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that means all of us are in that boat. And yet God, being rich in mercy and loving us so deeply, sent his son Jesus Christ to live without sin, to be offered up on the cross, to die the death that we deserve to die, so that all who place their trust in him might receive by his grace his payment put on your account. And so have your sins wiped clean for the glory of God. And so if there's any who are wandering from the truth or have never known the truth, then give me at least this blessing this morning. Let me turn you around. Not because I am anything special, but I am someone And return to this gospel truth that is a path of life instead of death. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful that you are a God who perseveres with us that you endure with us, that you love us, and that you are deeply faithful, even when we are at our most unfaithful. Thank you. Because we are bent toward 